Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, welcome back to the show. Before we jump into the episode, we're going to thank a couple of sponsors and we're going to start with Timeline Nutrition. As a health and longevity enthusiast, you know how important mitochondria are to every aspect of your health. But did you know how critical they are to maintaining muscle health? If you're over the age of 40, maybe even 35, you've probably noticed that building and holding onto lean muscle isn't quite as easy as it used to be. And this is an issue because carrying muscle not only helps us to look good, it also means that we stay metabolically healthy with less effort and get to perform our best. It's a huge part of aging well. This is why keeping up with a solid exercise routine is critical, but keeping muscle healthy as we age is a whole other story. Now, never present a problem without a solution. Urolithin A. This is a compound that's created a stir in the field of human performance and healthy aging that I've been using ever since I learned about them in episode 99 of this podcast. It is the active ingredient in MitoPure. It is the culmination of over 15 years of research, over 11 human clinical trials, and over 300 scientific studies. Timeline Nutrition's MitoPure is the first product to offer a precise dose of urolithin A that upgrades mitochondrial function, increasing cellular energy. This results in improved muscle endurance and performance in humans. We're not talking rats here. We're talking humans. It does this by stimulating mitophagy, a critical process in healthy aging used by the body to make sure we get rid of defective mitochondria that can get in the way of optimal health and performance. Now, how do you take it? This is the best part. You either get to take it as a great tasting protein shake. You can use capsules when you're traveling, or they've got delicious powders either in berry or or ginger to add to yogurt drinks or shakes. I rotate it through all three, depending on the day. Now, Timeline is offering listeners of this podcast 10% off your first order. Just go to timelinenutrition.com forward slash nat10 and use code nat10. And if you're up for it, I definitely recommend their three-month starter pack to try all three. Okay. Now, guys, about this episode. I am so excited about this. Today's episode is, well... Let's start with a question. Can eating apple peels be transformative to your gut health? That's a fun fact that you're going to find out about today. Today, we're diving into the world of gut health, an ever-growing issue amongst the entire population due to modern-day food production practices and ingredients. And if you've ever struggled with gut issues, which I have, you know how terrible and hopeless it can feel. And that's why you need to stay tuned to find out an effective gut reset protocol that will not only help to mitigate and relieve your gut issues, but ultimately will help to heal the gut and reduce inflammatory status in both the gut and the entire body. I'm joined today by Dr. Alexis Cowan, Director of Scientific Content at Layer Origin Nutrition. She dives into three specific ingredients the gut reset consists of, why they're so beneficial for healing, and how almost anyone can benefit from this protocol regardless of your symptoms. We also discuss the benefits of human milk oligosaccharides and why focusing on your gut health can help to heal other systems in your body. I first learned about this gut reset from my good friend, Joel Green. 
Anyway, back to Alexis. Dr. Alexis Cohen is a Princeton-trained PhD specializing in the metabolic physiology of nutritional and exercise intervention. She also works with clients to support them in all aspects of their journey to health, from diet and nutraceuticals to exercise and lifestyle. And we have a great offer for listeners of the podcast at layeroriginals.com. Just use promo code NAT15 to save on any order. Now, just a couple more things before we dive into the episode. I first want to share that I've been sharing a lot more information on my Instagram account about things I'm personally doing to biohack my superhuman performance, as well as giving recommendations for those biohacks, supplements, and practices that have been working really well for me. We also dive into bioregulator peptides and other tips and tricks for slowing down the aging process. So if you don't follow me on Instagram yet, you can check me out at Natalie Nidham. I'm really looking forward to connecting with you there. You can also connect with me through my website, natnidham.com, where you can join my newsletter. You can find about my private membership community on Mighty Networks called BSP Community and about my upcoming Women's Longevity and Resilience Retreat this fall in beautiful Cabarete in the Dominican Republic. Okay, one last thing before we dive into the episode is about one of the non-negotiable anchors of my longevity stack and that is spermidine by primidine made by Oxford HealthSpan. I take it myself every single night. I recommend it to my family, my friends, and my clients, and I want to share a little bit about it with you now. Spermidine was used for centuries by ancient Japanese emperors who knew a thing or two about longevity, and it's been a staple in the diets of Okinawan centenarians for, well, decades. And now modern science is validating the hows and the whys spermidine is a must-have tool in our smart aging arsenal. Not only does it positively impact nine of the 12 hallmarks of aging, but it also triggers beauty from within. So this is one of those supplements that does its work under the hood, but you also get to see the benefits. Studies even confirm and demonstrate that it supports hair growth, nail growth, as well as promoting collagen and elastin production for beautiful skin. It also modulates circadian rhythm and improves cognition. That circadian rhythm modulation shows up as better deep sleep for a lot of people. And I've seen these benefits in myself, my clients, and my parents. This supplement absolutely works. Does it sound too good to be true? Okay. Don't take my word for it. Head over to OxfordHealthSpan.com and read the borderline miraculous reviews from other users. And if you want to try it for yourself, all you have to do is use code BIONAT15 for a 15% discount off your purchase. And now let's dive into the gut with Dr. Alexis Cowan from Layer Origin Nutrition. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that all of the information presented in this podcast is for information purposes only. No medical advice, no diagnosing, no treatments suggested here. Before you try anything that you hear about or learn about here, make sure that you check with your medical provider. Welcome to the program, Alexis. It is such a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, no, I'm excited for this conversation. This is just like a deep dive into the microbiome, but in a very, from a very different perspective, you know, people are always arguing, you know, what's the way to, to restore balance in the microbiome? Like what is balance even in a microbiome? Like it's, it's such a mysterious aspect of human health. And I love the approach that the products we're going to talk about today take, because it's really about cultivating certain species to reestablish the balance that we all seek. And sometimes lack for any number of reasons. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, like a lot of people in the mainstream, there's a push towards using probiotics to really shape the microbiome. And it really leaves out of the picture, the power of food and food products to 
like actually impart large and significant and sustaining changes to the gut microbiome in a more meaningful way. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, these products, Layer Origins products that we're going to talk about really can help people accomplish this and, and can change lives ultimately. And, you know, I'll get into my story. I know you have a story with yeah. HMOs and like the gut protocol from Joel Green's work um, really like impacting your life in a positive way too. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm really looking forward to this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Alexis? <laughs> tell us, you know, I, you have a fascinating background and how you came to this. So, and, and a personal story to boot. So boom. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I'm a PhD from Princeton. I graduated in December. Um, it was in the molecular, molecular biology department. Um, despite it being the molecular biology department, my PhD work primarily focused on metabolism and the effects of different dietary and um, fasting inputs into, you know, how metabolic function is controlled at the whole body level and the tissue level. And so, you know, my work specifically, I looked closely at high carbohydrate diet versus ketogenic diet versus fasting to see, you know, what changes there were across different tissues and how tissues are responding to disparate nutrient inputs. Um, so that was really what my work focused on. And then I kind of, um, got into this program, you know, thinking I was going to start on an exercise project actually. And then as research tends to go, things don't go according to plan, uh, experiments fail and you realize that like a pivot needs to happen at some point. Otherwise, like I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> Can I cut in there for a second? Yeah, sure. Because I know everybody's sitting there wanting to know, and I want to know, is there an easy way for you to maybe give us a little bit of insight into what you found in the differences between keto fasting and high carb? Because I yeah. want to know, I mean, you, you're actually took three really interesting segments, like very rarely do people compare high carb. And I'm going to guess maybe, so were you doing your experiments on animals or on people? Yeah. So we were working in rodent models. Okay. Yep. And what did you find? Just, I mean, don't, you don't have to go through your entire dissertation with us, but, but if there were any big takeaways. Yeah, sure. So at a high level, um, basically the body responds to different nutrient inputs by changing um, nutrient handling, basically to keep things the same, more or less. So uh, the body wants to achieve homeostasis and maintain homeostasis. Um, ultimately, the ketogenic diet looks a lot like fasting at a metabolic level. So it's like high ketones, high fat burning, um, glucose and lactate, which are carbohydrate molecules, their, uh, utilization goes down a little bit, but the surprising thing was that their utilization didn't go down a lot because there's no carbohydrates in the diet. So that was what made us basically look more into like how this metabolic control is happening at a whole body level. And we essentially found that there's these metabolic cycles that occur to either increase flux or flow through a metabolic pathway, such as carbohydrate breakdown or fat breakdown. Um, and you can also basically the body can decrease flow through these metabolic cycles if there's a really high flow through the dietary input. So if you're eating a lot of carbohydrates, basically the carbohydrate cycling is diminished to a minimum. And then if you're eating a lot of fat, carbohydrate cycling is happening readily and fatty acid triglyceride cycling is minimized. So when, so, when you yeah. say cycling, you mean the body producing, like basically manufacturing its own? 
Yep. So by a metabolic cycle, I basically mean it, it can be called sometimes a feudal cycle. Yeah. Um, but it's not feudal in a sense because it's actually creating metabolic heat. So these cycles are known to create metabolic heat and contribute to like endotherms, like maintenance of body temperature. But essentially an example of a metabolic cycle would be like glucose converting to lactate and then lactate converting back to glucose. Right. And the same thing happens with fat. So it's like triglycerides convert to fatty acids and glycerol, which can be re-esterified to reform triglycerides. So these are the two core metabolic cycles um, that will control uh, macronutrients, specifically like the, the dietary carbohydrate and fat intake. It will control basically the fates of those. Mm-hmm. And in doing so can basically regulate and maintain um, homeostasis across this uh, disparate dietary inputs. Yeah, so that's so it's interesting. At the end of the day, all the body really wants is balance. That's yeah, all absolutely. That's all it's looking for, and it needs carbs for some stuff and fats for others, and it's going to get them one way or another. Absolutely, that's really <laughs> interesting. And so, did you find that there were any particular benefits to one over the other, or basically, this a healthy system will adapt to either and and deal. And then I think Mm -hmm. people, what we're seeing is people are imbalanced to begin with. And so some people seem to be finding their nirvana with keto or with fasting. And in some cases with high carb, uh, even though it's been vilified beyond. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So um, in our studies, we looked at mice that were adapted for about three weeks on each diet, which is about equivalent to a year in human time because uh, mouse metabolism is about 10 times faster. So it's roughly equivalent to like a, a, a full year of somebody being a human being on one of these diets, which is long-term, but not uh, as long-term as some people have actually been on these diets, like mm-hmm. you know, two, three, four years, even more in some cases. Yeah. So I think we need additional research to know if there's any chronic metabolic adaptations that are occurring that could potentially be maladaptive, that could be causing issues and be causing imbalance over time. Um, so I think that's like a really super, important point because we see a lot of issues cropping up with people on long-term low carbohydrate diets where they basically mm-hmm. become glucose intolerant. Yeah. And whether that glucose tolerance can be restored is a very important question because a lot of people are on these diets thinking that they're going to be the panacea that they're, and a lot of times in the beginning, they feel great. But then it's like, if you become dogmatic about it and keep sticking to something, even though you're getting these negative effects or diminishing returns, then that's where we can run into real problems. And the research isn't really there yet to like confirm like, oh, you should only be on the diet this period of time before you start to have these issues happening or even like the identification of biomarkers. So we can say when this biomarker changes, that means you've been on it too long. Yeah. Like regroup. We need to do something new. Um, We're just not there yet. So it's really important that people are mindful of how they're feeling and honest with themselves about how they're feeling on any sort of restrictive diet, because Um, I would say generally any restrictive diet over time is going to create diminishing returns. And ultimately, like you mentioned, the body's looking for balance and that has to come at some level through the diet. Yeah. I mean, frankly, this is the core of what Droll teaches, right? He's all about pushing different levers on different days, using things like a keto diet or a high carb diet or not so much a high carb diet, but a keto diet or a carnivore diet as tools in the toolkit as interventions more than as a chronic day-to-day application. So, okay. So not to sidebar too, too much into that. Sorry, I kind of interrupted you. So (laughs) 
Let's go back to uh, to all about Alexis. Oh yeah, sorry. So I was just I was basically going to going to mention that I I started on an exercise project that failed and I pivoted, um, but I was super interested in exercise coming into the PhD program personally and also nutrition because I uh, when I was eighteen, so like twelve years ago, I lost a hundred pounds and I had been like obese most of my my entire life basically since like first grade. I was on antibiotics like recurring uh, for recurring strep throat. And my weight just blew up after that and kind of spiraled up through high school that I ended up losing weight um, basically through calorie counting and like an hour and a half at the gym every day. Mm. And after that, you know, I dropped about 85 pounds over the course of that year. Um, and then an additional 15 in a couple of years following that. But after I lost the weight, I had really developed really bad IBS. Yeah. And I went to, you know, the doctor, I think it was about 2021 20, at the time. Um, and they said, you know, it's, they didn't really, it's very, it was a very small practice and like, they weren't very good doctors, I would say necessarily, but they basically said, you'll grow out of it. You're young. Like <laughs> no. just suffer for now, I guess. <laughs> just suck it up. It'll go away. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Right. But meanwhile, I literally had like blood in my stool. Like, oh my God, I couldn't eat anything without being in terrible pain. Like the bloating was insane. Um, and I eventually ended up finding out that dairy was a major trigger for me after doing an elimination diet. So I eliminated dairy strictly for about four or five years. Um, and that takes me in like in the timeline, it took me into my, the beginning of my time at Princeton. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I discovered Joel's work, the immunity code mm -hmm. and the gut protocol, which consists of three really simple ingredients. And it's like, can this really make that much? of a difference and yeah it can and i'll explain how like my um story behind them but so the three ingredients are an hmo powder which hmos are human milk oligosaccharides they're they were originally discovered in human breast milk and they're known to feed specific species of bacteria in the gut namely within the family of bifidobacteria um, and we're going to get into the like the importance of bifidobacteria and like what role they play in the body um, probably very soon. Yep. Uh, the second ingredient is a red phenol powder. So basically different red fruits that are dried and powdered. Um, that would be the second ingredient in this shake, this gut protocol shake. Um, the red phenols feed bifidobacteria as well as another um, species of bacteria called acromantia, which lives in the gut mucus lining and kind of controls um, the, the integrity of the tight junctions within yep. the colon. So if you have you know, high levels of acromantia and like a healthy population of bacteria in the gut, basically the, the, the tight junctions are going to be very, um, they're going to be super tight and they're not going <laughs> to let superfluous uh, molecules through there, like uh, bacterial endotoxins and things that can trigger off inflammation can also actually reduce overall calorie absorption from food. So lean individuals are shown to have way less, oh, sorry, way more acromantia in their gut compared to obese individuals and people with diabetes. And replenishing acromancy has been shown to improve glucose tolerance and insulin sensitivity in diabetic individuals. So super important bacteria. And then to that end, there's another, the, the final ingredient in the gut protocol is the apple peel powder, mm -hmm. which red apple peels contain these procyanidin molecules that are basically polyphenols that are really, really good at feeding acromancia specifically. So this gut protocol overall can be used to optimize bifidobacteria and acromancia and in doing so, um, we'll get into how bifido like shapes the rest of the microbiome, but uh, can basically optimize the microbiome and 
and ultimately heal the gut and reduce inflammatory status in the gut and the whole body. And that was my experience. So I was on the protocol for about six months. Um, and then after that, I was hesitant, but optimistic that I could try dairy again. So I just tried small amounts and had no reaction. And then con like consistently increased my dosing over time. And now I literally can eat whatever I want, <laughs> as much dairy as I want, milk, cheese, ice cream, like whatever. It's, I have no reactions to any foods anymore. And I used to also like be pretty intolerant to like beans or like raw onions or like a lot of garlic. I used to get bloating from those. Um, even like raw cruciferous vegetables that used to kind of cause like bloating or gas, like now nothing at all. Um, and I haven't even been on it strictly for like years. I would say I was on it for at least six months nonstop. And then since then I'll take a break every few weeks and maybe go off it for like a month and then come back on it. Um, but yeah, it's like not something you need to be on consistently for your entire life to really see meaningful changes. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to echo what you just said. I didn't have IBD necessarily, but I, like you, could not touch. I couldn't touch beans and I couldn't touch dairy. I mean, there were some cheeses I could have, but, you know, for me to have a whey protein shake was just not a happening thing. I'll never forget the day I figured out after doing Joel's gut reset, I was like, because, you know, part of his program, what's amazing, I mean, and not that I'm going to talk about Joel this whole time, but the beauty of his program is you're back in a world where you can eat beans, you can eat a bit of grains, you can eat dairy. Like you can now, you have a lot, you, you reestablish that variety of foods in your diet that you probably kind of lost over the years because, oh, I can't eat that. Oh, that makes me feel sick. That makes me feel bloated. And what's, what's shocking is that by reestablishing these populations of bacteria in your gut, all of a sudden thing and and resealing the gut and reestablishing the integrity of the mucus layer that he talks about a lot you all of a sudden have a much more resilient gut and you become able to break things down and and it can work for you and make nutrients for you it's it's quite amazing how these three little ingredients can kind of really turn your your tolerance and your ability to eat foods and your health around on its head it's you know did you ever try to do the apple peels as apple peels and not apple peel powder because i did <laughs> so in the beginning i was eating like six apple like actual apple peels every morning <laughs> and I, I have to say that i had the fattest happiest yeah, squirrels right? in my backyard i didn't know what to do with them anymore like my fridge was full of peeled apples and you make some applesauce for other people and then you make a couple of apple crumbles and then you do an apple something else and then you're like oh my god i'm like and it's a waste and you don't want to i didn't want to give them to my family because i'm like you need the peel with the, the apple <laughs> yeah exactly exactly it got to the point where like i would get up in the morning and the squirrels would be oh, yeah. waiting for me to throw <laughs> oh, yeah, them out for sure. <laughs> all right so cool so back to your story so you did the gut reset for about six months and now you intermittently go back to it every once in a while when let me ask you a question when you go back to it do you start from square one and work your way up for 20 days again or do you just go to the final phase where you're having the apple peels the hmo and the red phenols yeah, I just go to yeah. the final phase and I, you know, I always tolerate it. I haven't an issue with tolerance, um, you know, no bloating or anything like that from the protocol. 
since starting it. So, yep, I just jump on the highest um, nice. dose of each. All right. Well, let's let's dive into, you know, I think our next logical step, it's let's dive into these things and talk about what they can do and how they work in the body. And And you brought up something really interesting earlier about probiotics. So people you know, take probiotics in the hopes that they're going to colonize the gut and take hold. And the problem with that is if, you know, it's like a garden, you plant seeds in your garden, if the nutrients aren't there and the light conditions and the water conditions aren't right, they're not going to, they're not going to, it's not going to happen. They're not going to stick. And frankly, if we Mm -hmm. take it to the next iteration, which is a probiotic being a sapling or a little plant and you put it in your garden, again, if the nutrients, the soil and everything else isn't right, that plant's going to die. It's not going to last. And it's funny, you know, because I can't say that I've never seen people have good results from probiotics, but it's still inherently different because it, it, maybe you can speak, I mean, I know you can speak to this in, in a different way, but there's a difference between taking a probiotic and a prebiotic. And a lot of what we're talking about here is some form or other of prebiotic, which is feeding the bacteria in the gut. Yep, absolutely. So there are definitely certain strains of bacteria that have been clinically validated to improve certain conditions. So um, like antibiotic induced diarrhea, uh, certain types of like IBS or IBD, you know, these are the kind of issues that people may benefit from taking a specific strain of bifidobacteria, for example. Um, I think you kind of can run into some issues when you're getting into these big blends of probiotics that have like 10 different species in them. Um, If if the probiotic ends up working for you, how do you know which species is it? Is it all of, is it combinatorial? So like that makes it hard to kind of understand what's going on. And then in addition to that, as you alluded to, um, if you're taking this probiotic and you don't have the right nutrients to feed these bacteria, the right prebiotic molecules that are needed to feed these bacteria, they're not going to stick. And you're basically just wasting Mm -hmm. your money. Um, And you can actually, like a lot of these probiotics are quite expensive. So you can get a lot of these beneficial effects on the microbiome and shaping the microbiome in a more meaningful way through the use of prebiotics and prebiotics are basically just molecules that our body doesn't digest, but the bacteria in our gut can digest. So these molecules will persist through the digestive tract, um, reach to the colon where the bacteria there can feed on them. And everything that we mentioned in the gut protocol is an example of a prebiotic. So the three ingredients within the gut protocol, the apple peels, the red phenols, and the HMOs, they're all examples of prebiotics. And these prebiotics can be used to, can basically be consumed, and we're not going to be taking those nutrients on, but our gut biome and and the gut bugs can metabolize these nutrients and create interesting molecules from them. So um, in the example of bifidobacteria, Bifidobacteria absolutely love HMOs. And this can be kind of verified if you look at the infant gut. So in the newborn gut, um, the microbiome consists of up to 90% or more bifidobacteria. And that's because the diet is so rich in these HMO molecules from, from breastfeeding. And this, this bifidobacteria colonization early in life is really important for setting the tone for the rest of life and establishing immunity in the infant gut. And so essentially there's kind of this like dance between the like immune cells that are like beginning to develop within the newborn and the bacteria there. So it's really important for the um, newborn's gut to understand which bacteria are friendly and, and should be coexist, like the coexistence must happen with versus other things that could be less friendly. And so the bifidobacteria really play an important role in establishing, um, 
immune recognition of, of friendly gut microbes versus unfriendly early on. And also in addition to that, bifidobacteria will literally create molecules that can shape immune function and directly impact immune cells. So some of these molecules, including lactate and acetate, which are two small molecules that bifidobacteria can create when they metabolize HMO or other things like resistant starch or the red polyphenols mm -hmm. even, lactate and acetate can directly modulate immune function to create more of an anti-inflammatory environment, not only in the newborn, but also in the adult body. Um, so it's really crucial um, for to have a robust bifidobacteria population that um, is not only, you know, being fed the right prebiotics to support the, the production of these molecules and, and tone the immune system, but also these molecules can go on to feed other bacteria in the microbiome and shape basically a yeah. healthy microbiome. So if you're focusing on bifidobacteria because they participate in something called cross-feeding reactions, so the, these bacteria basically create molecules, the lactate and acetate, not only can they modulate the immune system, but they also feed other bacteria in the gut including the ones that make butyrate, which is a short chain fatty acid. So the butyrogenic bacteria feed on the lactate and acetate to make butyrate. And this butyrate is the primary fuel source for colon cells. And in addition to that also modulates the immune system directly in an anti-inflammatory manner. So if you're having lots of butyrate around your colon cells are being fed the appropriate, appropriate fuel source, um, which is going to facilitate their proper functioning. In the absence of sufficient butyrate levels, the colon begins to burn more glucose, which actually ends up driving up oxygen levels in the colon and in the gut in general, because essentially burning butyrate and other fatty acids allows the colon cells to scavenge oxygen because if you're burning, um, if you're burning fats, even short chain fats, you need to basically be running oxidative metabolism. So like mitochondrial yeah. metabolism and oxygen serves as the terminal electron acceptor in that pathway. So you're basically scavenging oxygen through that mechanism. But if you're burning glucose instead, you don't need to use oxygen anymore as the terminal electron acceptor. So you're essentially allowing oxygen to accumulate, which inhibits the growth of all these really great bacteria that we want around, including the, the butyrate producing ones. And so what ends up happening is you get this dysbiosis over time that drives up inflammation that, you know, inhibits colon cell function and, and starts to degrade the tight junctions between colon cells. So you can get some like leaky gut. So these are like, some of the issues that can arise over time if you're not, you know, cultivating the right bacteria and having these bacteria produce the right metabolites to support overall gut functioning and metabolic health. So what's interesting to me is obviously your best case scenario is as an infant, you get, you know, you, you're birth, you're birthed, <laughs> you're born by natural vaginal birth because that inoculates your, your, your microbiome in initially. And then the, the breastfeeding, both through exposure to different bacteria from the mom and the HMOs then continues that process of cultivating. But what's really fascinating is for those of us, those of us who are adults who didn't get that initial start, it's still possible to kind of go back and, and in some ways make up for, for that loss in the gut. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest differences between this strat this approach and a pro taking probiotics approach. And it, also it's just even about getting that, getting what you need to where it needs to go, which is incredibly hard. Whereas when you're providing the nutrients 
for those bacteria, it's a, it's a different kettle of fish. And the butyrate question is so interesting because I know so many people are trying to take butyrate in different ways. And if you don't get tributyrin, you're not getting the right form. And even that, like it's, it's a very complex set of problems. And yet here we are. And I remember when I learned this in Joel's course, oh, well, actually, if you just feed these bacteria, they're going to make them for you. I just think that's so incredibly powerful and such an, you know, you almost would think that virtually anybody would benefit from even doing like a 20 or 30 day run of, of this stuff just for maintenance purposes. Yeah. There is an important point that you bring up though. And that is like an order of operations. Yeah. So for, for example, taking butyrate directly uh, isn't going to be helpful and can actually cause issues in a person who has a very inflamed gut, because as it turns out, um, an inflamed gut can't actually take up butyrate very well because the transporters that take the, this molecule up become downregulated um, in the presence of inflammation. So the order of operations in this case, yeah. you know, if you're suffering actively from, from IBS or IBD or anything like that, um, would be to first spin down inflammation enough to get these, these transporters upregulated so that the butyrate can be taken up. And then instead of, you know, supplementing butyrate directly, you would instead take these molecules that can naturally um, lead to the production of butyrate by these key bacteria in the gut. And so for like, I work with clients in my practice now. So like I, I after I graduated, I started a business um, basically in health optimization and performance optimization. And for a lot of people dealing with gut issues and what I did for myself too, is uh, implemented a, a anti-inflammatory protocol first before starting the HMO protocol. Um, I would first have somebody try out the HMOs, a small amount, and see if they get any sort of bloating response from it, because that would be indicative of some sort of inflammation mm -hmm. present in the gut. But HMOs will very potently feed bifidobacteria, which then go on to feed these butyrogenic bacteria. And if this butyrate and other short-chain fatty acids aren't being taken up, they're going to accumulate and cause bloating and gas. So if that happens, then we know we need to first focus on inflammation. And the first steps that I like to take with people are um, a high dose omega-3, so DHA and EPA. Um, I also like to use hesperidin, which Joel has yeah. used uh, and mentioned also. So this is a, a polyphenol from citrus fruits, and it's been shown to really potently decrease inflammation in um, basically in people with, with colon inflammation specifically. So you can take the isolated molecule hesperidin, or you can take orange juice, which also has vitamin C, but in order to get the clinical dose yeah. of hesperidin, you would have to drink a lot of orange juice. So what I usually recommend is people do like some orange juice to get the vitamin C, or they can take a liposomal vitamin C, and then they can supplement with the, hesper the isolated hesperidin mm -hmm. powder. Um, so that can be really helpful for some people. Um, I'll use like a liposomal glutathione or an N-acetylcysteine also to help with the anti-inflammatory um, activities. And then the REDS powder, in addition to feeding bifidobacteria and acromantia, uh, the REDS also serve directly as antioxidants and radical scavenging molecules. So I'll have people directly start to Im implement the REDS powder first with the rest of these tools that we've just discussed, and then do that for about a week and then try reintroducing the HMOs and see if we've moved the needle at all on, um, you know, avoiding the bloating or gas from them. And then if we have, then we can start easing on to the full protocol over time and then ultimately get them up to like the full blown protocol over the course of like a few weeks and then keeping them there 
And basically then, you know, over time we can start reintroducing small amounts of certain foods that used to be triggers um, to see how they fare. Um, but that's generally the strategy that I'll use with people. You know, inflammation's the big caveat, right? If it's if the fire's burning, not much is going to happen. That's good until you get mm -hmm. it to calm down. Cool. Okay, so that's HMO, upregulate bifidobacteria, and all these other beautiful downstream events culminating in butyrate and maintaining the anaerobic nature of the environment so that we're supporting the anaerobes and not the aerobic guys because they're actually in this case they're not always bad but in this case they're not it's and it's about the right bug in the right place at the right time so in the small intestine the small intestine primarily contains facultative anaerobes which means that they can either um, exists in high oxygen environments or like moderate oxygen environments or low oxygen environments. So they can kind of switch between the two and they're really good at metabolizing mm -hmm. nitrogen. So, uh, basically you don't want these bacteria in the colon because they're going to be producing different right. byproducts that can end up driving up pH, um, because they like to, you know, consume nitrogenous molecules like amino acids. Um, basically the, the byproduct of that is, you know, Nitrogen containing molecules in general will increase pH, things like ammonia. Um, so if you're creating that in the colon and pH is going up, that's going to further inhibit the growth of the obligate anaerobes that will typically live in the colon under optimal conditions. So the obligate anaerobes require low oxygen environments in order to produce butyrate and other short chain fatty acids. So if you're making the pH, you know, higher than normal, which ideally around six, I guess, would be considered normal. And even though like people think like acids, bad, alkaline's good, it's like depends. never that it simple. Depends. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So in the colon, we actually want an acidic environment in order for the bacteria there to be functioning properly and producing the molecules that the colon needs. So if we have these facultative anaerobes overgrowing in the colon in the presence of inflammation, which is driving up oxygen and uh, allowing pH to kind of spiral upwards we're going to just keep having like a feed forward mechanism of issues, like be getting more issues. Um, but you know, the, the, the benefit to that is if we can like put a, like a wrench into that wheel, that means we can start pushing it in other directions. So if we can squash inflammation, for example, that will automatically start to bring oxygen levels down. That will start to help pH come down as well. And then we'll begin to like move things in the right direction. And then we can continue pushing things in the right directions with the gut protocol and other tools that we have in our toolkit to do so. So even though, you know, if you're spiraling in the wrong direction and like symptoms are getting worse, we can reverse that. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, implementing the right tools in the right order and then time ultimately. Yeah, no, you have to take your time. Like you said, I mean, look, you did the gut protocol for six months. I did it for at least three months, for sure. There is also the, the question of people with SIBO who already have a dysfunctional small intestine. Um, and the, the gut protocol yeah. kind of affects them differently as well, right? Like they have to, they can't handle the apple peels, for example. It's a disaster. I mean, they can sometimes handle a little bit of the apple peel powder. Do you want to speak to that a little bit as well? Yeah, so SIBO is an interesting point. Actually, this kind of ties back to um, what we were talking about earlier with probiotics, because a lot of probiotics, um, there's no one telling them you, know, you have to open up in the colon and dump off your cargo there. Like they could easily open up earlier on in the gut. And, you know, ultimately you don't want the bacteria that are in those capsules to be opening up in the small gut. So that can, you know, cause issues over time. And I think we're seeing SIBO rates mm -hmm. increasing.
thing, um, I would say, over the past decade or so. And, you know, so that's a consideration for sure. Um, for people with SIBO on the gut protocol, yeah, usually I will implement some protocol to help them deal with the bacterial overgrowth first. Um, once, you know, that's identified, whether it's through like a yeah. breath test um, or something else. But actually, my partner just was recently dealing with sulfur SIBO and it's like completely gone now. And he had it for like a good two years. He couldn't tolerate any alliums mm -hmm. whatsoever. Like even the smallest amount of onion, like he was sick, like really, really bad. And now over the past week, you know, he's been incorporating garlic, some onion and like some green onions and like literally is perfectly fine. And it's like a godsend wow. because like he loves onion and garlic. So it was like really depressing <laughs> for him to not be able to eat them. And essentially what we did was an antifungal protocol with him. And, and it was like pretty strict, I would say for six weeks. So like he wasn't eating any starches, any sugars. He was basically just eating meat and very low starch mm -hmm. vegetables um, that were steamed with like some olive oil. And because he couldn't have the garlic, which is antifungal. So that was unfortunate, but we did a lot of ginger mm -hmm. with him. We did a lot of spices in general and herbs. So we did a lot of fresh, like oregano, thyme, rosemary, um, cumin, coriander. So like these were the kind of the spices that and herbs we were using um, to kind of help just spin down the fungal overgrowth that we think was actually longstanding kind of culminated because he always had issues with like flaking scalp, some skin issues, which are like common signs of fungal overgrowth as well. Also like a film on the tongue. If you wake up in the morning and you see a film on your tongue, that's a pretty good sign that, you know, there's a fungal overgrowth going on in other places of the mm -hmm. body as well. So we used this protocol on him and he also was taking some herbal supplement called Mycozil, which had, uh, you know, some different uh, herbal, like an herbal concoction, had like Paul de Arco and a couple other ones in there that uh, seemed to help. So he did that for a month and then the diet with all the herbs and the spices strictly for about six weeks and has reintroduced, you know, basically everything now and is fine. So it's really amazing. So for people who are dealing with CIFO or SIBO, um, I guess SIBO would be a little bit different potentially, but ultimately, you know, you're going to be trying to limit the substrate for whatever is overgrowing in your gut. Um, so for a lot of people, you know, I think they'll find benefit from a carnivore diet under this setting. And a lot of people do find benefits from carnivore diet in the short yeah. term. Um, it's just a matter of knowing when to come and off how. of it and yep. And how to come off of it. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah strategizing that process is super important for like the long-term success. Hey guys, let's take a quick second to thank our sponsor for this episode, Berkeley Life Nitric Oxide. Folks, if nitric oxide is not part of your daily regimen, you will definitely want to listen to the rest of this message. Get this, your body is home to over 60,000 miles of blood vessels and nitric oxide helps circulate blood to all of those vessels through vasodilation. And while it's made naturally in the body, we produce less nitric oxide as we age, resulting in diminished blood flow, less effective circulation of critical oxygen, key nutrients, and glucose. Berkeley Life is my go-to for nitric oxide support. I take my two dietary nitrate capsules in the morning and I'm good to go. The more I learn about nitric oxide, including its impact on proper hormone balance and oxidative stress, the more I encourage my clients to join me in incorporating Berkeley Life's easy daily supplement into their daily wellness routine. Berkeley Life's high quality supplements are available on berkeleylife.com, but you're going to need my practitioner code NIDDBL when you register and check out for 10% off your first order. All right, let's get back to the show. 
All right, so that's HMOs and and a whole bunch of other stuff. Now let's move to the infamous apple peel part of the protocol, which is, as we were saying earlier, you know, when we first start diligently peeling our apples every morning and eventually that gets old. But let's talk about the power of, of apple peel really in this whole, it's like it's kind of hard to imagine when you first come to it that eating the peels of apple could be so transformative for your gut health. I feel like a lot of the science and like our discoveries end up pointing back to things that were known for a long time. And it's just like a matter of rediscovering them with like new eyes. Um, but yes, the apple peels, so specifically red apples, um, they, the, the peels of the apples contain these procyanidin molecules, which are very potent food sources for acromantia. They're polyphenols. Um, there's also similar molecules found in like dark grapes and cranberries. So these foods also serve as pretty good food sources for acromantia. And actually, interestingly enough, there uh, was a paper out somewhat recently that showed that HMOs can actually directly feed acromantia as well. So there's more to the story, you know, developing there. There's like a lot of interplay and like crossover between food sources between bifidobacteria and acromantia, which is really cool, actually, because um you know, we're already kind of focusing on these two groups of bacteria to optimize the gut and then to find out there's so much overlap between their nutrient preferences in that way. It makes sense because, you know, they're kind of serving as cornerstones in gut health. Um, so for the apple peels, basically taking this powder, it, the purpose of that is to bolster levels of acromantia, which is uh, a species of bacteria, specifically Acromantia mucinophila, that lives in the mucus layer of the colon. And while it's there, in addition to eating, you know, polyphenols and maybe some HMOs um, that come its way, it also feasts on the actual mucus protein of the, of the, the lining. Um, but it doesn't actually eat the protein, it turns out. It turns out that it actually eats the carbohydrate groups that are bound to the proteins in the mucus like mm -hmm. layer. So it says it's essentially, even though it's degrading the mucus, it triggers the goblet cells of the colon to actually produce more mucus. So paradoxically, you might think, oh, it's not good. Yeah. You know, the mucus layer is protective, like acromantia is eating it. Why is this like, this is, should be bad, but it's actually, these bacteria are stimulating the production of more mucus. So the net effect is actually a thicker mucus layer, not a thinner mucus layer. And this is super important for, you know, protecting gut barrier integrity. So um, the gut barrier is very important for regulating what's going in and what's staying out. Uh, for example, E. coli produces something called lipopolysaccharide, mm -hmm. LPS, which is a bacterial endotoxin that, you know, if the gut barrier is compromised, this LPS can leak into the bloodstream and can trigger off inflammation in disparate areas of the body. So specifically because lipopolysaccharide is um, lipophilic, as the name suggests, so it likes to bind to fat molecules. When it enters the bloodstream, it can get stuck in adipose tissue and kind of foment inflammation within the adipose tissue, which ultimately can lead to, you know, more fat gain and make it more difficult to lose weight and make, you know, this fat more stubborn, inflamed and mm -hmm. sick fundamentally, which can just drive obesity and insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction over time. So it's really important, um, you know, for anybody interested in fat loss um, or like maintaining their fat loss to really focus at the gut first, because that's where inflammatory status is really going to be controlled, not only through not letting these molecules like LPS through the gut, but also by actively producing these anti-inflammatory molecules from bifidobacteria 
and acromancy even that can influence immune status and keep inflammation levels at a minimum so that, you know, you can have a healthy aging process and it makes the fat loss process easier and even can create changes in cognition. So we know that the gut barrier is composed of the same tight junctions, the same cells essentially that surround the brain as well and the blood brain barrier. And something that compromises the gut barrier can also go on to compromise the blood brain barrier and lead to cognitive dysfunction over time. And that's becoming increasingly more obvious that, you know, inflammation around and in the brain can drive Alzheimer's and dementia. So we're getting the, this phenotype where the brain can no longer burn glucose effectively, which is its primary fuel source. And if it can't burn glucose, then it's basically starving mm-hmm. to death. Unless, you know, you can add some tools in like ketones or ketogenic diet that can kind of help to get around yeah. that problem. But it's not necessarily solving the problem that the brain has, which is this energy crisis due to inflammation. So it's really, really key to start as, you know, the beauty of it is you can start at any age, but the earlier you start, the better, because you kind of want to prevent anything from even getting a foothold to begin with. Um, but, you know, literally for any, anybody at any age, you can start and it's better late than never. Like you can make some progress at any age. And, um, you know, just by implementing some of these strategies and working with somebody who can help guide you through it in the right order of operations, the right steps um, to get you, you know, either the results you want as, as in regards to like decreasing symptoms or to pre- preventing any issues from even developing. What are your thoughts on, there's a brand of probiotics that just came out with an acrobantia and it's quite pricey. So I've been dying to ask somebody about this. What are your thoughts on just popping acrobantia? <laughs> yeah. So I saw a pendulum came out with the product. It's been like in and out of stock. So I think it's been quite popular and, and they've also been claiming that it can like promote weight loss and, increased glucose sensitivity. So I think, you know, that's, those are kind of buzzwords Mm -hmm. for people. Um, You know, I think they've done some trials to show that it can increase uh, glucose tolerance. So I think it, you know, decreases HbA1c by a certain extent. I'm not sure if they showed clinically yet that they can actually reduce Mm -hmm. weight. Um, Ultimately, you know, you can take all the probiotics you want, but it's not going to make as much of a difference as a prebiotic approach. Like, literally just putting in the soil that those bugs need to thrive. Like that's going to be the way to kind of bolster them the most because without those food sources, you're only going to get, you know, minimal colonization and minimal effects. So, you know, potentially you could, you could think about something like a symbiotic, which is a combination pre and probiotic. Mm -hmm. So if you're taking the acromancia probiotic and you're also prioritizing eating the foods and, you know, maybe doing the gut protocol, that will feed acromancia, you could kind of envision that this could have like a more um, impactful benefit than either by themselves, potentially, at least the probiotic by itself. Um, So, you know, that could be a potential strategy. They, I don't think they're doing a symbiotic yet, but it's something that, you know, could be worth looking into uh, the consumer side of yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I've people have come to me about it. I've said, yeah, I mean, if I was going to use it, it would be in conjunction with the gut protocol so that you're at least feeding the guys, you know, like you're, again, you're throwing a population in. If they have nothing to eat, they're just not going to be able to stick around. Exactly. Like there's a reason that, 
if you have low acromancy in your gut, there's a reason for that. Exactly. And just popping a pill is not going to solve that if you're not getting to the root of what's the problem. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. And so our third contestant, <laughs> unless we have anything else to say on the apple peels, are the phenol reds, the crowning glory of the protocol, which makes it all taste really yummy. Because I'm not going to lie, like the apple peel powder, it doesn't, it, if you just dump it into water, there's something about it, it kind of blobs. You have to like have, like I had a little jar, a special little jar that I would get it and get to shake it and then you have to drink it really fast so it doesn't come together again but you know the other thing i wanted to mention also with the if if you decide to do apple peels and and you do have like you know an army of squirrels outside your door which will grow you know i think the other thing about the apple peels is to be really mindful of the quality of apples that you're buying like they need to be organic they need to not be coated in wax because we know that apples get coated in wax and if you're if you're just eating a lot of peels, and I know that in Canada, I don't know if it's the same in the States, there was a big kerfuffle a few years ago about a particular pesticide they were using specifically on apples that was really nasty. Don't forget that that, that peel is going to capture everything in the environment that it hits. And between the wax and the and the pesticides and the herbicides and whatever else they're they're applying, you could end up doing more harm than good. You know, certainly people could do apples and especially it's, well, at the time of this recording, it's fall. So it's apple season where I am, but the apple peel powder takes a lot of that out of play. It's number one, it's easier, it's less time consuming, and you know that it's organic and somebody's paid attention to where they're getting those those peels from. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. And one thing that I found actually that um, is helpful for like dissolving the apple peel powder into the shake is if you put a little bit of MCT powder with it, Oh yeah, it becomes like a really nice emulsion and it doesn't stick to the side. So I, I like to use like a blender bottle and I'll shake it up. If you add a little bit of MCT powder, you know, nothing really sticks to the sides anymore and you can drink it and it's more homogenous. So nice. that's a little tip people can use to like help prevent the clumping, which I definitely noticed also in the beginning. Yeah, And once I got back to eating dairy, I would just make myself like, I would just take yogurt and in my HMO and my apple peel powder and my phenols and mixed it all up. And it was actually quite yummy because the phenols come in. And so let's talk about those because they taste, it's like a dessert. Like it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I particularly like Layer Origins uh, red powder. I haven't tried Joel's yet. Prior to that, I was using a couple other brands on Amazon and there was just like 30 ingredients in it. And it kind of like bummed me out because I, I wasn't a huge fan of the flavor, first of all. And then like, I just don't like products that are overly complicated. Mm -hmm. um layer origin came out with their reds powder earlier in the year i believe this year yeah um and i really love it because there's only like five six ingredients and it's like very clean tasting uh dissolves amazing and tastes really good so the reds powder contains a few different red fruits um including goji berry strawberry raspberry beets um and these basically contain these red polyphenol molecules that not only can feed bifidobacteria, like we mentioned, and also acromancia to a certain extent. But they also directly will serve as like these free radical scavenging molecules and antioxidants in the gut. Right. So they can be really helpful, like I mentioned earlier, for people who have an inflamed gut already, using these red polyphenols can help to move the needle in the right direction and begin to spin down inflammation in combination with other tools. So the red polyphenols are really crucial in this aspect because they're supporting anti-inflammation and they're feeding the bugs that we want around. Um, so that makes them, you know, unique, I would say in that, in that aspect, because the apple peels and the HMOs can cause issues in people that are having, you know, inflammation already actively. So the reds are a good way to kind of ease into the protocol and, you know, get the needle moving in the right direction. 
and it also tastes great. So it's like a win, win, win. Yeah, it's a total win, win, win for sure. So the interplay of the, these three really, so this podcast is really about, it's not about you, <laughs> right? It's about feeding that, that community of bugs that's really running the show. And so maybe what we can do is talk a little bit, speak a little bit to the impact of these of these bugs on so many different aspects of human health, right? So we talked already a little bit about the immune system, about mental health or mental function, cognitive, like there's mental health, like there's there's increasingly literature on whether it's depression or anxiety or whatever the case may be, but on top of that, there's cognitive health. So even going as far as saying that it will have an, it can potentially have an impact on neurodegenerative issues as well. And I guess that could be potentially an outcropping of never having dealt with it ahead of time. It's causing all this anxiety. And over time you get enough dysfunction as you were talking about in the brain metabolism and across the, the blood brain barrier that now it just escalates to a whole other level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the underlying uh, commonality between all these issues really comes back to inflammation. Mm -hmm. Um, at so many levels. So, you know, whether it's diabetes, which is ultimately driven by inflammation in the skeletal muscle first, which is, you know, decreasing its ability to take up glucose, which, you know, allows glucose to linger in the circulation for too long. And it allows fat molecules to begin to like accumulate in the muscle because mitochondria begins getting sluggish and sick um, and ultimately like kind of dying. So you're decreasing your mitochondrial count, you're decreasing your muscles capability of burning nutrient fuels and muscle is like the primary nutrient sink in the body. It's like the most abundant organ in the body by mass. Like if you combine all the muscles together, it's very important for maintaining metabolic homeostasis and making sure that that muscle isn't inflamed is going to be the first step to ensuring that you're metabolically healthy. Yeah. We already know, like we mentioned before that the gut microbiome specifically bifidobacteria and also acromantia by keeping those tight junctions really, um, you know, maintaining the gut barrier integrity to a very high extent um, is going to be super important for regulating what gets through the gut for actively modulating immune cell function and decreasing inflammation and increasing anti-inflammation, which these immune cells will then go on to influence other immune cells in the body and the whole body inflammatory status to help either reduce or, you know, beget inflammation in the muscle. Um, you know, in addition to that, we talked about the brain a bit, um, mm -hmm. you know, anxiety, depression, and IBS, IBD, and other gut issues are very highly correlated in like clinical practice. So we know that there's a relationship there. And, you know, I think a lot of people will, can recognize that like, if they've ever had issues with their gut, that it does affect their mood and the, you know, the way that they function. Mm -hmm. And, you know, interestingly, actually, there's going to be a product coming out soon within the next few months by layer origin, that's going to be a super HMO that contains actually five different human milk oligosaccharides in it. And two of these are actually known to feed bacteria that can directly influence um, psychological well-being, you know, depression, anxiety in a positive way. So, you know, by modulating the microbiome, we can ultimately like change our outlook on life and help us to, you know, develop healthy habits and, and just have a better um, mood and relationships. So it can be very all encompassing in that way that, 
you know, you think from the, from the gut level, you know, you're affecting digestion and assimilation, but no, you're affecting so much more. And it's really the crux to the health of every organ in your body, because that's the gut is what sees everything first. The gut is what's regulating what comes in and what stays out. And, you know, also in addition to that, of course, we talked about the microbes in the gut actively producing things that can affect, you know, all the organs of the body, either directly or indirectly. So it's just so, so crucial for people to understand this so that they can, you know, begin to take action in their own life to improve their health and like be proactive about it instead of reactive. So if we can get out ahead of a lot of these issues, we'll have much better outcomes um, but even if we have active issues, we can still begin to make progress and like improve symptoms and ultimately, you know, depending on severity and even go into remission, like our, our dairy issues, like completely gone now. So it's not yeah. impossible to like change course. Yeah. And are you finding that, I mean, I would imagine that you're finding even with more severe gut issues, gut dysfunction issues, like the Crohn's, the colitis, like this. I mean, again, there's going to be other steps that are going to have to be implemented possibly before and along the way, but these three little ingredients are going to come into play at some point to, because, you know, these are people very often who end up on these crazy drug, like crazy medications that are, you know, I mean, look, no, no, like it, it, they're important. Sometimes it allows someone to just reclaim their life, right? To get to a place where they can function in the world again. But unfortunately, it's not doing anything to solve the problem. It's really just slapping a bandaid on it and there's side effects and, and all kinds of stuff that come with it. And to what you were just saying, you now still essentially have a dysbiotic gut. And so all of the other aspects are still going to be a major player. But are there protocols as well? And do you work with people or are there other protocols to help people with those much more serious? I mean, I don't want to say more serious because somebody with really bad IBS is, you know, they're on, they're on the struggle bus already. But again, Crohn's and, and ulcerative colitis are definitely just taking that all up another notch. Yeah, absolutely. I think it ultimately will come down to like when things get implemented might change. And then like also where we're starting, like, we may have to be even more aggressive on the anti-inflammatory front to begin with. And yeah. you know, I think that's where like some of the like pharmaceutical or clinical options can come into play because most of those drugs are basically immunosuppressive. Mm -hmm. So they're going to help bring down inflammation very, you know, acutely. And if you stay on it, like it can cause a whole host of issues. And like anybody who's familiar with, um, you know, like corticosteroids will know that like there can be very strong rebound effects later. Once you try to come off of them, it can be very hard to get off them. It can create a lot of issues like inflammatory issues in other parts of your body. Um, and they, you know, for these drugs, they list off all the side effects, which just range. It's basically just a whole host of autoimmune issues and, you know, other inflammatory problems that can crop up. So in the very, very short term, it, you know, for some people with severe issues, it can make sense to, you know, implement some of these pharmaceuticals um, as a way to just kind of get inflammation under control enough to begin implementing other strategies. Um, yeah. So it's just a matter, matter of trial and error, too, to see what what's working and what's not. Um, if somebody, you know, is totally averse to going the pharmaceutical route, there's very powerful ways that we can affect inflammation from you know, food and, and supplementation route as well. And probably peptides, maybe you could speak to that. Yeah. Um, there's definitely yeah. other options out there. Yeah, no, definitely. There's, there's, there's definitely a peptide route 
in all this, you know, you've got obviously BPC-157 that is such a champion in the gut and for gut healing. And then you've also got things like KPV, which is very powerful anti-inflammatory and has some antimicrobial properties as well. So, I mean, those are just two of them and it's it's never all that simple. It's never just a pep, you know, I, I deal with this all the time. It's the peptide on its own is never going, is, is rarely going to be the only thing that you need. But at the same time, it's this is where the magic happens, where you bring in the peptide, you bring in the lifestyle, because again, chronic stress, this is another one, you know, like I've worked with people who are under such massive stress from their job or whatever, and you can throw everything at them. You can change the diet, you can use the peptides, you can use, you know, prebiotics, probiotics, whatever, but, but it's like literally their stomach is churning all the time. And that in and of itself is enough, to, you know, they're sleep deprived, like that's enough to, to negate anything else that you can implement. So we just, there's, there's no getting around the fact that you have to, you have to address the whole, the whole package here. And, and, and to me, the peptides are superheroes, but no more than what we've just been talking about right? Because as I've said to people so many times, they're not going to fix your microbiome. Like they're just not. So, so I think that one without the other, and, and you might be able to achieve with the HMO, the apple peels and, and the phenols, you might be able to repair the gut as you were just talking, like you're going to reestablish the integrity of the gut lining. Where the peptides can sometimes come in is they can give you a leg up. They can kind of be a little bit of a shortcut so that it's a little bit like the immunosuppressive drugs for the ulcerative colitis or Crohn's person. It just allows them to kind of be able to breathe and function so that then they can do the work to really yeah. get, get the job done. Yep, absolutely. It's a matter of following through that step. And I think a lot of people get stuck there because they don't have the proper guidance to like lead them to where they need to go next. Instead, it's like, okay, well, my doctor told me to take this so that like that's the end game. I guess I'm on this for like the rest of my life or whatever it may be. So it's really important to have the proper guidance and have access to good information so that you can, you know, be informed about your options. Ultimately. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So if we went to the layer origin site though, there's a lot more than these three products. Mm-hmm. There's like a, a ton of stuff there. Is it, do you want to speak a little bit to some of the other stuff? I mean, these would be, these three really are the cornerstone of if you if if you were stuck on a desert island you could only have three those would be the three you would take with you i'm sure is there anything else there that you want to touch on a little bit just to speak to some, some more specialized stuff that they they've got because i've noticed like in the last year or two like it, it's exploded their the number of products that they have on the site yeah absolutely so i mean their one product is a, a combination of raspberry strawberry and um hmo powder yeah and- I, I would bring it up only because it's like the most delicious thing I've ever tasted. I will literally take the powder and like put it on my tongue and it's just like, <laughs> it tastes like fresh fruit. It's like, it's delicious. Divine. I've had it. Yeah. I love that. Like highly recommend it. They also have like a coconut water powder, um, which can go nice. You know, if, if you're just trying to hydrate at the gym or whatever it may be, you can incorporate it into your shake um, or other water, which goes great. They also put their HMO powder into like a bunch of different formulations. So you can get HMO in different ways, depending on, you know, what recipes you like or um, yeah. how you enjoy taking them. 
Yeah. Actually, that's that's a good that brings up one or a couple more last points. If can you put HMOs into something hot, or is it better to keep them cold? Is there are they heat sensitive at all, or any of the apple peel won't be the phenols? I don't think would be, but would the HMO be heat sensitive in any way? Do you know? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, from a chemical standpoint, I think they should be quite stable, so I don't think it will be an issue. Um, I would have to look more into it, though, honestly. Like the if there's any research on like their heat stability, but just from like a first principles, I think it should be okay. So yeah. you can probably add them into like hot chocolate if you if you like that, or your coffee even. Um, yeah. Matcha, I, I would put it in my matcha sometimes. So I would usually drink mine ice. So, but yeah, so I think it, it should be totally fine to, you know, add them into a hot beverage as well. Um, yeah. Maybe like boiling hot, but you know, if you're mm. putting into coffee, something like At least hot. warm or something. And they, yeah. and they dissolve really nicely too. Very, very nicely, yes. Okay, so have we left anything out? Is there anything else you'd like to cover, Alexis? I mean, I know we could keep going for a very long time. <laughs> yeah, I think we, I mean, we covered a lot of ground. I think ultimately, you know, the, the takeaways for people should be that it's really important to focus on your gut first, almost regardless of what issues you have going on overtly, like despite, you know, even if you have no symptoms at all and you feel great you could actually benefit still from this gut protocol from a prophylactic standpoint mm-hmm. or even actually from a genetic predisposition standpoint. So that's one thing I actually wanted to mention. People yeah. that have um, mutations in a gene called FUT2, um, which is a gene that basically produces an enzyme and this enzyme produces a molecule that feeds bifidobacteria in the gut. And this basically this enzyme puts this molecule onto the surface of gut cells. And so if you have a fully functioning FUT2 enzyme, you have two good copies, one from mom, one from dad, you're going to have lots of this molecule present in your gut to feed bifidobacteria. And these people will naturally have higher levels of bifidobacteria in the gut. Conversely, individuals who are FUT2 non-secretors, meaning they have, you know, one or usually two bad copies, bad copies or non-functioning copies of FUT2, these people will naturally have lower levels of bifidobacteria in the gut, and they'll be more susceptible to developing issues with allergies, um, autoimmunity, asthma, things like this, um, because we know bifidobacteria is so crucial for regulating the inflammatory environment. And so for these people, it's especially important to incorporate these strategies that we're talking about, the HMO powder, the the full protocol, honestly, will help. And also incorporating things like resistant starches, which we didn't really get into, but essentially resistant starches are starches that uh, we don't break down in our mouth or in our stomachs, but they can traverse the gut and feed bifidobacteria very well. So things like cooked and cooled potatoes, cooked and cooled rice um, with some sort of fat source, beans um, cooked and cooled. So there's a theme here. Basically, you want to recool any starches to facilitate the formation of this resistant starch again. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, people with uh, the FUT2 mutation should be prioritizing things like this. Um, the red phenols, the apple peels, the HMOs to really boost their, their levels of bifidobacteria in the gut because they're naturally going to have a deficiency um, that can predispose them to issues down the line. So really simple strategies that can kind of prevent, you know, going down the, the disease route later in life. It would be great to get out ahead of that. So if you have your genetic test results, yep. you can check your FUT2 locus and you can see there's information online or people can also reach out to me. Um, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Alexis Jasmine. Basically, you know, there's, it's very simple to like look through your raw data file to find the location and then just to see what um, alleles you have at that location. And that will tell you basically whether you have functioning FUT2 or you have one 
bad copy, quote unquote, or two bad copies um, that will basically allow you to know how much you need to prioritize cultivating bifidobacteria because in, in people who are non-secretors, it's going to be harder for them to basically stick around. So you got to be more diligent about it. Yeah. So you just basically have to, yeah, stay on the protocol just yeah. or come or keep coming back to it. Even yeah. if you did, you know, once you get the, the ship going in the right direction, even if you did one or two weeks a month, you'd probably be fine. Absolutely. Okay. Well, this is, this is great. We've covered a lot. It's like, I feel like I've kind of done the second Joel Green course here (laughs) (laughs) with Alexis. And I mean, it's always nice to explore the material from a different angle, right? And to, and to get into it from a different perspective. So thank you so much for that. So you've told people where they can find you on Instagram. Is there any other way for people to reach you or to find you, Alexis? Yeah, so I'm most active on Instagram for my business. All my information's on there. But if anybody doesn't have an Instagram, um, I have an email that I'm, you know, I check all the time and people can reach out to me there. It's also Jasmine at gmail.com. So if anybody has any questions or wants to reach out about any services that I offer or has any questions about Layer Origins products, they can reach out to me by email or they can message me on Instagram and I'll be happy to help. Okay. That's fantastic. And guys, if you decide that you want to try some of these products and you've learned enough here that you feel you want to go ahead with it, you can go to layeroriginals.com and you can use, I think the code is NAT15 and that'll save you 15% off your delicious red phenols, your amazing apple peels and your spectacular HMO. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you, Alexis, for this. This was, uh, this was great. Thanks so much for having me. We'll do it again soon. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love that. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly or if you'd like to leave any comments or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.